The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. Love for you to open your Bibles this morning to Psalm 145. We're going to be reading that together uh, here in a couple of minutes. Over the past several months, we've been talking about um, just what is the Bible? How does the Bible Work And there are a couple things I'm just going to run through a little bit of a recap for us and for you uh, this morning. Uh, what is the Bible? Well, number one, it tells us what our origin story is. It tells us where we came from. It doesn't necessarily tell us how that all worked in Genesis chapter one. That's not its focus. The focus of Genesis one is to tell us who, who is God and why we're here, which is to be fruitful and multiply, to reign over creation as a representative of God, as an icon of God, and as an image of God, to point all people, all things, all of creation itself to God. The Bible also works to tell us what went wrong. We've cast aside God's definitions of good and evil and embraced our own, which, if you haven't noticed, leads to change, which seems to change our ideas of right and wrong almost daily. And this subjective moralism, this subjective sense of truth and falsehood has led to a chaos, a cascade of chaos, death, and destruction that other people have to deal with. And every time we try to fix those subjectives, right and wrongs, we only find ourselves digging deeper and deeper and deeper into the hole of chaos, death, and destruction. The Bible also works to tell me that I cannot out God's grace. I am not to live a compartmentalized life. His relationship with me and my relationship with him either affects all of me or it affects none of me. The Bible works to tell me that my hope is not found in a ballot box. My hope is not found in a political ideology, but my hope Your hope as a Christian is ultimately found in a faithful king of my heart who is named God. It tells me that when we stray, God will necessarily send people into our lives to remind us of him and of his goodness. And should I choose to ignore those people who are in my life to tell me the truth, I ignore them at my own peril. The Bible's not also a a collection of lectures about God. It's a vibrant story and it's a sweeping narrative that reflects the realities of God and reflects back on me the realities of who I am as his creation. One of the ways that the Bible does this is through the words of the poets. Now, Moses isn't a poet, but I'm going to talk about him for a second. Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, he tells the people that he has set before them the choice between life and death. These are all of the rules and regulations of God. If you follow them, you will have life. If you disobey them, you will have death. And just 24 chapters later, in Joshua 24, Joshua says, to the same people, will you fear God and serve him or will you choose your own way? We see the people constantly being presented with this choice as they left, as they left their slavery and their bondage in Egypt and went into the promised land. But I want you to listen this morning to, to the way the psalmist 
says almost the exact same thing. And I want you to notice the difference, right? On one hand, we have Moses and Joshua telling us to obey laws. It's life and death. Choose whom you are going to serve. And then we have Psalm chapter one. It is in the YouVersion app if you're following along. I'm just gonna read it from my Bible this morning. Listen to the way the psalmist says, very similar to what Moses and Joshua read. Oh, the joys of those who do, do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers. But they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along a riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither and they prosper in all they do. But not the wicked. They are like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. They will be condemned at the time of judgment. Sinners will have no place among the godly. For the Lord watches over the path of the godly, but the path of the wicked leads to destruction. See, the Psalms tell us the exact same thing that God has been saying all along, but they do it in such a full, vibrant, life-giving way. Almost a year ago, on April 1st of 2020, I began reading the Psalms on Facebook Live with the best of thoughts and intentions. At 7 a.m., a group of faithful Westway people gathered on Facebook Live, and we just started reading through the Psalms together. And again, I had the best thoughts and intentions. Um, even though I had read the Psalms before, my memory of the Psalms was pure nostalgia. Here's what I mean by that. Often we think of the good old days, but like the Billy Joel song says, the good old days weren't always good. So I read through the Psalms to a group of people in the midst of a pandemic. What I was hoping for, what I was praying for, what I was desiring for was a daily dose of what I call coffee cup feel-good verses. Verses that would provide salve and a constant stream of hope to a people desperately in need of it. Instead, we got verses like this. Answer me when I call to you, O God who calls me innocent. O Lord, hear me as I pray. Pay attention to my groaning. We got, O Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when I am in trouble? And that was just in the first 10 Psalms. When we read through the Psalms, we are confronted with the reality of a sin-stained, broken world. And the words of the poets add depth and emotion to the palette of God's word because the Bible is not just a lecture about who God is. It's been said that much of the Bible is God's word to man. But in the Psalms, in the poetry, what we find is man speaking to God. We find joy and sadness, anger and rage, frustration, hope, praise. These things are equally represented in the words of the Psalms. In other words, when we open up the Bible, in the midst of our hardships and realities and situations and circumstances, in the midst of this pandemic, we open God's word to the poets. And we do not find a group of scrubbed clean, everything's great, platitude spouting cult members. What we find in the Bible 
is reality. What we find in the Bible is a God who can take it, who can take our pain, who can take our suffering. And more than that, he wants to hear it. He wants us to offer it to him. See, the Psalms teach us when we feel lonely, we can say to the God of the universe, oh God, how long will you forget me? Forever? We can say, how long must I struggle with the anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? We can echo the words of Jesus on the cross, who was quoting the Psalms when he said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And we can praise God, we can worship God, we can thank God. Something that I've often heard from Christians is they don't know how to pray. They're unsure of how to pray. They're unsure of what words they should use when they pray. And what I found in my own experience is that the Psalms, the words of the poets, are there for us to pray. They give us words when we have none. When we cannot express our own thoughts, we can simply turn to God's word to the Psalms, to the words of the poets. And we can pray them, we can share them, we can speak them to God. Because what happens is the words of the poets relieve me of the inadequacy and anxiety that I often feel when I don't know how to talk to God. One of the things that I've learned in in my time in speaking is someone has always said it better than me. And that is also true for the words of the poets. See, I don't need to be creative in my use of the language when I read God's word, when I want to praise him. This is how the Bible works to teach us to praise God in each and every situation. It teaches us to go to him when we are struggling. It teaches us to go to him when things are going well. Interestingly, and I only learned this last week, only one of the 150 Psalms actually has the heading, a, pray, a psalm of praise to God. Now, there are other praise psalms in the book of the Psalms, but only one is called a psalm of praise to God, and that is Psalm 145. Now, this is gonna be a little bit awkward for those of you watching at home, which is the vast majority of you, but I had us plan today that we were going to stand together and read Psalm 145 as praise. So we're gonna do that anyway. So I'm gonna ask you to stand up at home. Um, For those people that are here with with our tech team, I'm gonna ask you to stand. And I'm just gonna ask you to read Psalm 145 with me. The words are gonna be on the screen for you to follow along. So please join me in reading Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my God and King, and praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day. Yes, I will praise you forever. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. Let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts. Let them proclaim your power. I will meditate on your majestic, glorious splendor and your wonderful miracles. Your awe-inspiring deeds will be on every tongue. I will proclaim your greatness. Everyone will share the story of your wonderful goodness. They will sing with joy about your righteousness. 
The Lord is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. The Lord is good to everyone. He showers compassion on all his creation. All of your works will thank you, Lord, and your faithful followers will praise you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom. They will give examples of your power. They will tell about your mighty deeds and about the majesty and glory of your reign. For your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. You rule throughout all generations. The Lord always keeps his promises. He is gracious in all he does. The Lord helps the fallen and lifts those bent beneath their loads. The eyes of all look to you in hope. You give them their food as they need it. When you open your hand, you satisfy the hunger and thirst of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in everything he does. He's filled with kindness. The Lord is close to all who call on him. Yes, to all who call on him in truth. He grants the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cries for help and rescues them. The Lord protects all those who love him, but he destroys the wicked. I will praise the Lord and may everyone on earth bless his holy name forever and ever. Have a seat. See, the Bible tells us how to praise God. The Bible tells us how to praise God in every situation. And praise is, is, is not recognizing what he has done for us. Thanks, that is thanksgiving. Praise is praising him for who he is. What I would encourage you to do this week as you, as you think about our time together, as you think about a, how to respond, go through the Psalms and respond to God. Tell God how great he is. That's what praise is. And that's how the Bible works to teach us how to praise God. But the poets don't just tell us how to praise God. The poets teach us what wisdom is, specifically what God's wisdom is. I'm going to read from Proverbs chapter 1 to you. It is, again, this is in the YouVersion Bible app, if you're following along. This is Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. These are the Proverbs of Solomon, David's son, king of Israel. Their purpose is to teach people wisdom and discipline, to help them understand the insights of the wise. Their purpose is to teach people to live disciplined and successful lives, to help them do what is right, just, and fair. These Proverbs will give insight to the simple, knowledge and discernment to the young. Let the wise listen to these Proverbs and become even wiser. Let those with understanding receive guidance. By exploring the meaning in these Proverbs and parables, the words of the wise and their riddles. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and discipline. When we read these words, one of the things that we can learn is that wisdom always comes from God. And wisdom is something that man was supposed to learn over time. There's a difference between wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is something that can be gained through reading, through study, through memorization. 
Wisdom, however, is learned through experience. I think I've talked about this before, but when I was growing up, I played golf. We had a membership at a golf club, and I took lessons every Thursday. They had a junior golf league. And if you were to ask me the question, how do you hold the club? Where is the ball supposed to be in your stance? I would be able to tell you all of the right answers. I would be able to tell you that I'm supposed to keep my left arm straight when I go into my backswing. I'm supposed to move through the ball, move my hips. That is how you hit a golf ball properly. But the reality of it is, put a golf club in my hand, a ball on the tee in the middle of summertime, and I become a complete moron on the golf course. I have no idea what I'm doing. Everything I've ever learned and come to know about golf does not display itself in my swing because there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. We talked about this a few minutes ago, but God put man on the earth to rule. And in order to rule, you have to have wisdom. How was Adam going to get this wisdom? How was he going to gain what he needed in order to rule and reign and image God correctly? Well, by working in the garden, by tending it and by keeping it. And if you've ever worked in a garden, you know that there are things that you learn as you go. You learn that the best way to pull up weeds is to not just reach down and snatch them, but to dig deeply into the earth and pull it up by the root. If you've ever painted a fence, you know over time you're going to learn the best way to hold a brush. You're going to gain wisdom. You're going to learn how to do things by doing. You're going to learn how to do things by experience. This is why understanding what really happened in the garden when Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is so important for us. When they ate of that fruit, their sin was not merely the disobedience of of rejecting what God had planned for them. But it was rejecting God's plan and God's purpose and his design for how they were to learn. See, Adam and Eve were given a choice in the garden. They were given the choice between not eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and completely trusting in God's will for the definition of right and wrong. Or they could take the shortcut. They could eat of the tree and know everything that they were supposed to know about the difference between good and evil. And we know, because we read the text a few weeks ago from Genesis chapter three, they chose the shortcut. And what happened when they chose the shortcut is their minds were overwhelmed by knowledge. They couldn't take it. They couldn't take all of the inputs coming into their system. And suddenly they knew the difference between right and wrong. And this was sin. I've been thinking about this over the past several weeks. And I've talked about this show before on Disney+. Plus. It's called, it's called WandaVision. And I was about halfway through the season, and I noticed that I was kind of doing something on Friday mornings. Every Friday afternoon, my wife would get off work, and we would spend half an hour together watching that show. It was kind of our Friday afternoon routine. But I found myself doing something a little bit earlier in the day. I would, 
hop on social media. I would hop on Twitter and my Twitter feed would be filled with spoilers telling me what was going to happen in the episode that day. So I would kind of start to click through them. And, and this was about the third or fourth week, so about halfway through the season. I was like, why am I doing this? Why am I, why am I sneaking in ahead to find out what's going on in this show? Because part of the thrill of the show, I mean, there's lots of things going on here. But, but what's interesting is the show was taking place and in the program there was a set of characters that were also trying to figure out what was happening in what they were seeing. And this, it was this really strange thing to watch people trying to figure out what was going on in the show at the same time you were trying to figure out what was going on in the show. And I found myself identifying with these characters of trying to figure it out. And I wanted to take a shortcut. And then I began to think about Adam and Eve. I began to think about how, how I was robbing joy, not only from myself, but I was robbing joy from my wife. Like if I knew everything that was going to happen in the show in advance, what's the fun in watching that together? How is that something that's joyful? See, God wanted Adam and Eve to learn the difference between right and wrong, and to choose good over evil because of their experience with it. He wanted them to see, no, I shouldn't do it that way. I should do it this way because this way gives me life. And instead, they chose the shortcut. They chose the spoiler. They wanted to know what was right and wrong so badly. The Bible teaches us wisdom. And when we read it and we study it, we learn what to do. And then we have the opportunity to practice the things that give us life or that bring us death. So how does the Bible teach us wisdom? Well, just the text itself teaches us everything we need to know, everything God wanted us to know about the character of God and the character of man. We've talked about that so many times over the past several years. And in James, the Bible, the, Bible, the Bible talks about itself as a mirror, how it reflects back to us accurately the reality of God and the reality of us. So when I read scripture, a question that I ought to ask of it, before I ask almost any other question, is what is this text telling me about the character of God? Because the Bible's not about me, the Bible's about God. So what is the Bible telling me about God? And then here's the second question that we ask. What does the Bible tell us about, me, about myself? That's one way. More specifically than that, the Bible reminds me often that compared to God, I don't know anything. This is totally an age thing. I want you to think about, parents, how many times you've gotten into a battle of wits with your five-year-old. My hunch is if your kids ask you questions, you would be able to dominate them intellectually. You would be able to make them feel like a fool, like they have no idea what's going on. Parents with teenagers, I know that, you, I know that your kids think they know way more than you do. 
And for the kids that are in this room, and there are a few, you don't. I know you think you do, but you don't. Why? Because your parents have age, your parents have wisdom, your parents have knowledge. What that looks like in my world is we often have Bible college students from Summit Christian College here doing mentored ministry at Westway Christian Church. And in my world, that looks like a student who has just finished their how to study the Bible class, coming into our room on a Sunday morning and sitting through a sermon, or maybe a preaching class and listening to someone else speak, right? They think they have all of the wisdom and all of the knowledge in the world. Because I remember what it was like for me to walk into a church after my first how to study the Bible class or to sit in a small group and think, oh, I could do it better than that. I could do it better than that. I could do it better than that. See, what we have to understand is compared to God, we don't know anything. God is ageless. God is timely. God is infinite, and he is filled with far more wisdom and knowledge than we could ever imagine. So when we press back against God, parents, it's like our small children, our teenage children, or even our worse, even worse, our adult children pressing back against us, telling us that we have no idea what we are talking about. This is perfectly demonstrated in the book of Job in the Bible. The book of Job is a gut-wrenching tale, a gut-wrenching story of someone who loses everything. After 37 chapters of, of questions and conversations between Job and his friends about why he's suffering, surely, Job, you must have done something to deserve this suffering, and the reality of it is he didn't. Job begins to believe his friends. So he asks God a question. Why? In Job 38, verses 1 to 3, this is going to be on the screen. Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. So what kind of questions is God going to ask Job? Well, there are two chapters full of questions, and I'm not going to read them all. But here are the highlights. Imagine for a moment being asked these questions by God. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst forth from the womb and as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness? Job, have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Parents, you should say that the next time your kids ask you a question, right? Who do you think you are, Job? 
You don't know anything. We, compared to God, we don't know anything. See, we need the Bible to remind us of who God is, of who we are, and we need the Bible to remind us of who we are not. And who we are not is all-knowing. Well, how does Job respond to all of this from God? What does he say? This will be, um, I'm just going to read this from the Bible. This is Job 42, verses 1 through 6. I want you to pay close attention to this. So God asks Job all of these questions. He intellectually dominates Job. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom and with such ignorance? It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about. Things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. I want you to notice a few things from Job chapter 42, verses 1 to 6. Number one, I want you to notice the praise. I know, God, that you can do anything and no one can stop you. See, the Bible teaches us how to praise God. Praise looks like telling God who he is, what he's about, ascribing characteristics to him that we ourselves do not have. And I know that many of us feel like we can do anything. Many of us have been told from from the time we were young, the Western ethic of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You can be anyone you want to be. You can achieve any goal. If you can dream it, you can do it. Well, that's not what God's word says. Only God can do anything. And no one can stop him. This is how we praise him. I also want you to notice that this is what submission is. This is the Bible teaching us what submission looks like, what humility looks like to God. God, you asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It was me. And I was talking about things that I don't understand. That is humility before God. That is submission before God. That is an acknowledgement that God is far too wonderful for us. I also want you to see in this text that we see the difference between knowledge and wisdom. I had heard about you, God, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. Knowledge is for us reading and studying the Bible and knowing about God, knowing all of the aspects of him, knowing that God is omniscient and omnipresent and omnipowerful and omnipowerful, omnipotent. God is all of these things. That is 
That is knowledge, but wisdom is acting upon those things. And I've shared this. This is part of my own story. For many years, if you would have asked me what I believe about God, what I believe about Jesus, what I believe about Christianity, I would pair it back to you all of the Orthodox Christian beliefs. Yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, I believe he died on a cross. Yes, I believe that he was resurrected on the third day. I believe those things. I heard about those things. But it wasn't until I had an encounter with Jesus that I'd seen him with my own eyes. And that it actually make a difference in my life. And my question to you this morning, have you merely heard about God? Have you merely heard about Jesus? Do you check all of the correct boxes? But has he impacted your life? Has he made a difference? Have you experienced him? Has the knowledge been transformed into wisdom by the presence of the Spirit in your life that pushes and pulls you more towards him? Because when we read this text from Job 42, verses 1 to 6, the last thing that we see is that an experience and an encounter with God always leads to repentance. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. See, when we have this experience with God, when we read his word, and we ask him to transform us. We ask him to clearly communicate the reality of who he is and the reality of who we are. We will be led to repentance by the spirit that dwells within us. My hope and prayer for you today is that as you encounter God and his word, you will praise him you will worship him, not just with your words, but with your thoughts and your deeds and the way that you love others around you. That is how we live out the wisdom of God. That is how we demonstrate that what we read in the Bible is true when we act upon it, when we live our lives in ways that prompt us to love God fully and to love others as we love ourselves. Let's pray together. God, we're thankful for your word this morning. I ask that as we read your word, we would be filled with the desire to praise you because of who you are. I ask that we would be filled with the desire to worship you God, help us to recognize our ignorance. Help us to be satisfied with our ignorance. Help us to be satisfied that we worship a God who knows more than we do. You will always know more than we do. 
Help us to live lives that demonstrate that you are in charge, that you are in control, and you have what's best for us in mind, even when it doesn't seem like it. God, help us take on the attitude of Job. When we are confronted with the, with the wisdom and the reality of who you are and the reality of who we are not, God, help us to repent. And it's in your son's name that we pray.